0: Everyone and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, editing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery include Chaz and Karen Brenchley, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 164, an interview with Joe Fletcher. Welcome, Joe.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here.
0: Well, we are so glad to have you ever since starting to correspond with you on Twitter. And, well, you've known Chaz just forever, right?
1: Oh, yes. We go way back to the glory days of the 1980s when we were young and beautiful and in our prime. And now we're not quite so young, but every bit as beautiful and certainly still in our prime.
2: Absolutely.
0: I was going to say we are certainly pretty. We are not going to say. And it's some jerk pointed out that the 80s were 40 years ago and then he had to get up off the floor because I punched him (laughs) (laughs) it's very rude to to say to a woman who hasn't had any coffee yet in the morning
1: even worse to say without gin in her hand exactly exactly (laughs) so have
0: you are I believe right now a freelance free bird editor for hire a, a, a pen an eraser and red marker for hire—is that what you're correct for you? What you're doing these days? How do you describe yourself?
1: It it is as of as of a month ago. I've returned to once I started, which is a bit strange. I've been um, editing publishing for my own imprint, Joe Fletcher Books, for the past uh, nearly twelve years, and uh, the powers of be decided it was time for me to move on. So I am returning to actually what I what I really love, which is getting down and dirty with manuscripts, helping authors to be the very best they can, and getting rid of every single time they use seem when they didn't mean seem.
0: <laughs> okay, that's going to take some unpacking. What do you mean, it seems like you're trying to say something
1: here? Uh, no, I don't seem like I am trying to say it. Every author has ticks. Every author has things they do that they just don't. They don't realise they're doing it because it's it's like shaking and nodding of heads. You know, we do it all the time when we're talking. I bet Chaz and Karen, if you're looking at each other now, I bet you're nodding along, aren't you? Oh hell yeah! And, um, so it's its seems natural to put that in the book, but before you realize it, you've got pages and pages and pages of nodding and shaking of heads and shrugging and lifting of eyebrows so So one of the things i I really enjoy is just exercising all of that and saving you from your own self
0: <laughs> Thank I think you that, that's beautiful i I used to say the word silently far too much and then I did a search on a document and discovered that I'd said silently like four hundred times. <laughs> oh.
3: oh dear.
1: Everyone has something. Everyone has something.
0: I believe it. So it how do you I mean, I one of it is people, especially in their real life, if they say just over and over again, can I just talk to you for a minute? Can we just and and then you realize that just is one of the biggest lies. Like, can you just look at this a little and take a minute, which is a dirty, <laughs> dirty lie every time anybody says it, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I had a wonderful publicist and she'd just joined me and we went out to lunch and I could not stop myself. And I'm so embarrassed about this. <laughs> but I could not stop myself from saying, you know, you use like twice in every sentence. Was she from California? she was not she was a she was a she was she was English British um although she had um she she lived in the on the continent as well but it's a it's a thing these days it's what young people grow up saying like you know like I was just going down to the shops like and I thought I'd buy this book like and my friend like well she said it was really cool like so I thought like I'd give it a go
0: it did sound like California too so clearly (laughs) it happens in both places So here's a question. How is the difference between using it there? And then uh, as you were using the word like over and over again, I was remembering that Neil Gaiman has written a lot of poetry and he uses the word like very frequently. The rain came down like suicides.
1: Yeah, it's used with intent. Yes. If you're using it with intent, I have no problem at all. If you are using repetition with intent, absolutely brilliant. You have to know that you are doing it. And most of the time you don't and you don't mean to use the same words over and over. I do sometimes when it's when it's it's quite bad, I I do say to my beloved authors, Go on, just highlight highlight this word. See how many times you use it, and then you know, you get the embarrassed call and the offer of more gin, and and, and we're all happy again. <laughs>
3: that's
0: that's beautiful. So, where do you fall in on the use the word "said" versus "murmured"? Tilting her head to the side.
1: <laughs> on the whole, "said" is an extremely useful word because you don't see it when you're reading. It's it's just there to tag a sentence. Um, quite often you don't need anything at all. The biggest problem comes when you feel that every sentence needs to be tagged with something, she said, a little sadly. Why is that? He sighed. Well, she murmured, her voice going lower, because that's not really right. He grunted. Do you think so? His voice was now.
0: I think we've all read that book.
1: <laughs> now you can see, all you can see are the tags, not what they're actually saying. Although, in that case, they weren't saying anything of importance anyway. So I'd I get rid of the whole paragraph. But you want people to concentrate on the words that matter. And a lot of the time, especially adverbs, uh, should be banished from for all time. I was just going to
2: ask you what your stance was on adverbs.
1: I don't loathe them as much as some people.
2: She said slowly.
1: I <laughs> can't and then, help it, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't loathe them as much as some people, but I do think you have to be careful when you're using them.
2: Judiciously.
1: You have to be judicious about using them.
0: Ooh, she got you there. She did. <laughs> a touch, a veritable touch. <laughs> Can I throw a pet peeve out there and tell me if you see it all the time? Oh, go ahead. I contemplate that I can sit and talk to Karen and Chaz for hours in their living room, sipping whatever tasty beverage they happen to be serving. And I don't usually say, now, as you know, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Or, I don't actually use their names in full thread of conversation, unless I'm trying to get somebody's attention, for instance, Chaz, 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 you're about to drop your wine! Or, you know, (laughs) the cat. It's a very direct attention-grabbing thing, but I see it so often in the first opening, like I say opening three chapters, and even later through the book, we're in a romantic scene, maybe we are murmuring together in the moonlight. I. I don't recall ever using somebody's name in that situation in real life. And so it definitely throws me in a book. What do you say to people when they're constantly saying, as you know, Chaz, and
1: well, Chaz? I take it out. I take it out. If they don't know who they're talking with, we've got a much bigger problem. Exactly. (laughs) I, I absolutely agree. I completely agree with you i think people writers especially starting writers are scared to let the reader do too much work and they they need to have faith because our beloved readers are just as clever as we are and if they're invested in the book they're following who said what um it's 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 interesting uh one of the one of the things that um not being a publisher anymore has freed me to do is to read outside my um my normal submission pile and I picked up a copy beautiful beautiful Barnes and Noble copy of The Swiss Family Robinson the, the presentation copy they did illustrated by Heath Robinson absolutely gorgeous book uh, which I have not read since I was a child and I think there's a very strong chance that when i read it it was uh it was abridged uh so i started reading this a couple of nights ago and i realized apart from the fact that the pastor is the most sanctimonious git you could ever hope to <laughs> meet in a book i don't think many children would find it a very easy book to read these days have have, have you read it
0: I have. I have, but again, not since childhood yeah yeah um, it's
1: it's not that any of the words are difficult because they're not, but the style of writing you know it's a nineteenth century novel, and it's about a a family who rock up on this on this island and make a life for themselves, and there are no there are no speech marks. It's mostly the father narrating, you know, telling the children to stop being, uh, stop being selfish and start to think of themselves and their good provider, and and generally um, lectures them and, and ensures their their moral and the philosophical well being is well looked after while they're off killing any animal they happen to come across, yes. um, because obviously they need to eat, but it's. It's interesting that although there are no speech marks, um, paragraphing is virtually unknown to the author, Mm -hmm. but it's not hard to read because the sentences, although long, are actually quite well constructed.
0: How do you see the stylistic change between the, I call the long sentence version is almost the Jane Austen syndrome, versus the Raymond Chandler, if it has more than 10 words, I'm surprised.
1: It must have something to do with shorter attention spans. It must have something to do with television and radio. It must have something to do with the way children are taught, although I'm not a teacher, and it's been some years since I was at school, so I, I, I'm not going to go down that 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 route. But whatever it is, we have people find it difficult to get immersed in a book which requires real effort in reading it. I think, and it's a shame because I I read again going through some of the the old Victorian favourites, and I can't help but think. If they were published now, would they be the multi-million bestsellers that they are?
3: Well, that's a good point. When I was in the third and fourth grade, my favorite novel was Oliver Twist. And I read it many times. And then I read it again as an adult, and it was a different book. And so I can see what you mean. And, And as a child, I would read anything. I mean, obviously, I would read, but that didn't mean I understood well above my grade level but I could still get through the basic story, but yes, I understand what you mean. Cause I read Robinson Crusoe and my um, memory of it is stuff happened, but I didn't get, I have no sense of any of the people in it. Okay. Whereas Oliver Twist, I have a very good sense of Fagin and Oliver and, and some of the other characters because Dickens was much better than this guy. <laughs> I think it's
0: different. I mean, when we were kids, that was the Madeline Longle Beverly Cleary age in a lot of ways, Yes. You know, and and your 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 chateaux, and so there, and yet there's some of us that my grandmother was getting her English degree when I was learning how to read. So one of my early pieces that I got was the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is oh, stunningly cool. fantastic for children. Yes, well, you go and read it too because it is exactly the same as Sam. I am, <laughs> I am Sam. Sam, <laughs> I am. I am in Enkidu In Kidu am I? You know, these are they're they're very repetitious that way, but. I also had a house full of Clavel and Missioner, so that was my third grade reading. So I got great sex education based on novelists early.
1: I think we all did, didn't we? I remember someone gave me a copy of The Virgin Soldiers for my seventh birthday, I think. Um, and we weren't allowed. My, my I grew up in a pacifist family, and so we weren't allowed war books, and it, it had to be snuck in. But, <coughs> under- ah. <laughs> you know, it was the book going around school. I wanted to read it. Um the Godfather, and 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 all those books, yeah. No one thought about, or we certainly didn't think about ages, the way I think people do now.
2: Yeah. Um. I when when I was a kid, there were I, there were two sections in the library. There was the children's section and the adult section, and you migrated from one to the other when you were twelve, I think. The, the, this whole notion of yeah, these are middle grade books and these are YA and da 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 da. That's that. That's I don't know. I find it. I find it so limiting.
0: Do you feel it does a disservice to the kids to say right? You should never include a word that they don't understand. Or oh, yeah, <laughs> Should we remember the Princess Bride where she said I was a syllabub? He knew a syllabub was a drink with tea and jam, but he also knew an apology when he heard one. <laughs> you know that. It explains the words
3: that get used. I became a young adult when exactly when the young adult library, you know, young adult books were the became a thing. And um and so the, the local library, because I was there all the time, said here, be on our young adult panel, you know, and and help us pick young adult books. And I found that really fascinating because, again, I suddenly started reading more sex than I ever had before. (laughs) Um, And um, and and this was a very Mormon area uh, where I grew up. And so they were concerned about these things. But, yeah, I I learned an awful lot about that kind of thing. And so it was very helpful. So in one sense, it's nice to be able to steer people of a certain age to certain books because, you know, it gives an expands expands their knowledge because it's far more, I think there's far more sex in YA than I've ever read in adult novels. Mm-hmm. But um, that might just be me.
1: <laughs> was it just an excuse for you to get free books?
3: Don't ask her the <laughs> questions that we
0: don't want to. You yeah. know. I always found it interesting that in all of them, there's such a big deal about, well, their actual sexuality and thinking the first ones where they ever had a book talk about having a period was, was earth shattering to me. And fantastic, because, you know, I'd had miserable, horrible periods starting, you know, 10 years old. And as they talk about, I I actually kind of enjoy that finally, finally, we're starting to have periods (laughs) in fantasy novels. (laughs) I'm just saying that, okay, a girl gets on horseback and rides for, you know, three months across the steps. Somewhere in there, she's going to bleed. It's just the way life's worked.
1: Exactly. Exactly, I there wasn't YA when I was growing up. I think the first time I came across coming of age issues was probably, um, I locked into a pile of Judy Bloom books yes. as as an adult, as an adult. But I hadn't read her; I'd heard great things about her, so I I might possibly have lifted the lot of them and worked my way through them. And I was in awe of a woman who could write so brilliantly about things that at that age I wouldn't have known I needed to know, but most definitely did.
3: Yes, she was She was one of the ones that I was frequently called in for the young adult um, panel because a, a, a parent complained about it, uh, about one of uh, her books.
1: Oh, for heaven's sake.
3: Because, well, they had sex in them. And this was, you know, Pocatello, Idaho, who is, you know, two hours drive north of Utah. So I'm going out on a limb that people in Utah have sex, just <laughs> a theory.
2: They <laughs> <just> don't read about it.
0: And they don't want their children to know about it. But, but this brings up an interesting question. And um, let me back up to make it a, a more 20,000 view question. Joe, you've been editing for a long time. And we've talked about kind of how the styles have changed. What trends are you seeing now?
1: Well, I'm seeing we're talking about y a and that is the biggest trend I'm seeing. There's a lot more romanticy out there than there has been for some years. There is a lot less hard s f out there which is a shame my my list i've I've always wherever I've worked endeavour to make it as broad a church as possible because the whole point of this this genre in which we play is it can be anything it can be crime it can be romance it can be it can be hard it can be soft it can be historical it can be alternate worlds um i always describe it and 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 it gets boring but we are ginger rogers we do everything that a fiction novelist does but we do it backwards on on high heels Ah. because we have to get the world perfect before we put in our characters and our plots and that's why I've always stayed within this field although I we read absolutely voraciously outside it nonetheless to work in it I can do anything I want and every time a trend a big trend comes along an all-encompassing trend what I see is the mainstream publishers focusing on that to the detriment of everything else. And that, thank heavens, is when the, the small presses and indies mm-hmm. pick up the slack until publishers come to their senses again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. i tell, tell you what I'm loving at the moment, Joe, is the resurgence in fleeing pure space opera, because yes. it's always been my favourite uh, subgenre of science fiction. And, and there is so much good stuff around at the moment.
1: I started JFB in uh, 2011, and it took me, gosh, eight years to find a decent space opera, and now, now we've, we're getting loads of them again, and it's really exciting. And all sorts, all sorts, not just, not just, you know, Star Wars revisited, but really interesting things.
0: I also froze solid when you said the word romanticy and thought that was the best word I've ever heard. And how have I only heard that today?
2: (laughs) I've not come across that. And I love it. Romanticy.
0: I mean, to a certain extent from when I first had, I had a roommate years ago in college that loved bodice rippers. And she had a pile of them, literal, beside her bed. And so I, I was reading them. And to me, it's like, well, they're all kind of fantasy, aren't they? But but the the romanticy in terms of the you know the i i love all of the zoe chant and all of the spin-offs of the shapeshifter romance and my my favorite is somebody actually went out and wrote shapeshifting honey badger thrillers with a touch of romance <laughs> um, that that are just freakishly beautiful <laughs> in a All the explosions, all of the bullets, all of the violence. And, yeah, technically it's shapeshifter romances, but let's talk about violence. (laughs) See, space for everything. There is space for everything. Do you see, I mean, I know they say you can't write for a trend coming up, but what are some of the big ones that are going right now that are just, that automatically you'll say, okay, I'd look at that just because it's a popular genre?
1: Well, witches are big again. They haven't been for a long time. Um, they're certainly coming back. I'm seeing, I I I said when I finished publishing Charlene Harris's uh, Sookie Stackhouse series that I would never publish another vampire book <laughs> uh, because there were a lot of them. And by that time, everyone was doing vampires. And then uh, a couple of years ago, my, my then assistant who's now running uh Hodder's uh new SF imprint, Hodderscape. Um I will I will give a shout out to Molly Powell because she's brilliant. But she came to me and said, Joe, I found this 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 vampire novel on the slush pile and I I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to publish it. But I f if you can just tell me what I ought to suggest he does next. And I started reading it and and I got really mad because I had no choice but to publish it. It was that good, and Lee Herman wrote um, wrote a, a sequel to the first one, and they were. It, it was about a lesbian vampire who falls in love with a girl who is uh, suffers panic attacks and has real problems going out. And it's it's clever and it's funny and it's romantic and it's scary, and 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 damn it, there I was publishing vampire books again.
2: <laughs> Hang on, what what was the
1: title? Oh, Love Bites.
3: Ah, okay,
1: I've yes. seen that one.
0: Here's something that you you just brought up. Something that I had noticed recently. I have seen a lot more neurodivergence in character in in book characters, and. I kind of like it because we it sort of existed in if you sit with your armchair psychology degree and you look at the different characters within some of the historical you know um, air quote classic literature like yeah what is what is wrong with you you know weathering let's talk about the Brontes and their absolutely. characters
1: absolutely <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but now I love that a lot of the characters especially when they're first person narrated. You get to see all of the brain weasels right up front, and I think I think sometimes it makes it easy for people to relate to them because there are so many brain weasels across the planet, but seeing them in action in your hero and heroines can make them very relatable and I've seen more of that What do you think i
1: I absolutely agree we're all on the spectrum somewhere let's face it um i've I have an author who uh, wrote two wonderful books, then took ten years off because she had an aut- autistic son, and devoted a lot of time to bringing him up. This is this is Kit Whitfield, and when she, uh, when her agent sent me her her book, uh, I I loved that all of that everything she'd learnt over those ten years, everything that she'd discovered about her son and about how his brain worked and what did work and what didn't work is all funneled into the the character of a a young boy who is believed to have been touched by the 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 kind neighbors the the fairies the the uncanny who live in the woods next door and this is why he can't go inside. This is why he screams if you touch him. This is why he will he will only uh, converse or in grunts and snorts. But with his family, but they can they can help him to do a day's work. He's very loving to them, but he is he is not normal. And the the heart of this story. Is the fairy smiths having to help him, uh, or rather having to stop the uh the, the local bigwigs hanging him mm. for perching in the forest because he doesn't know any better. And as I was reading it, um I I just kept thinking that explains so much. All those all those books about fairies I read back in the day and about people touched by the Fae, and how people reacted. And suddenly here is someone laying it out for me. I thought it was absolutely wonderful.
2: That's clever.
3: That
1: sounds really
2: good. good, yes. And again, the title?
1: The book is Kit Whitfield's In the Heart of Hidden Things, and it came out gosh earlier this year um Chaz, if you get hold of it i hope you love it
0: it reminds me of elizabeth moon's speed of dark was one of oh. the first ones that i read be- using a point of view of an autistic person and wow that was an yeah. amazing book i love that one so what advice would you give as as you've seen everybody's foibles and failures and and there's a cartoon that i'm probably going to post and saying don't worry my editor will clean it up uh-huh. <laughs> what What advice would you give to somebody who's okay they're interested in becoming a published author? maybe they've they've written a few stories or maybe they've written a first draft of a novel. What would you advise?
1: I would say never ever send it out until you have put it under your bed and sat on it for two months and then gone through it again when you've forgotten everything you wrote or at least given it a chance, I would say never rely on spell check i think it is really important that you you check it yourself i would say look for the repetitions that you know are going to be there even if you don't recognize them straight off and i would say don't be afraid to let your readers do some of the work
2: Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm having so much fun at the moment. I'm I'm going through a series that I wrote like 25 years ago for a new edition, and I was so apparently I was just obsessed with semicolons and ellipses. I'm taking out so many of them; it's extraordinary.
1: How wonderful you get to do that! Though. I know. <laughs> Honestly, that's that's a really exciting thing. Because you've grown as an author, you've grown as a stylist. I think that's I think that's a smashing thing to be able to do.
2: Yeah, it really is. I'm I'm just delighted about the whole thing.
3: So, what is this series and who's publishing it? By the way,
2: <laughs> they are the Books of Outremer, um, oh, my really? Crusader fantasy, um, and um, it's they're, they're being published by Wizards Tower Press.
3: And are any out
2: so far? Yeah, the first first two are out, and and I'm working through the third as we speak.
3: I'm sorry, I'm his, I've got to ask him, i got to ask these kind of questions of him because otherwise he'll never admit that he's got anything actually out. So
1: I love those books. I oh, really do. You, Crusader fantasy, what's not to love?
2: That was my own thought when, when the idea struck me. It was lovely. The Hound and the
0: Falcon trilogy by Judy Tarr, still some of my favorite Crusader fantasies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. she's good. She's good. She went to Mount Holyoke, too. <laughs> Exactly. So, Joe, if somebody wanted to say, right, I need you to take a look at me. I think this woman can help me be better. Should they just email you directly? Should they reach out on the Facebook page? How would somebody engage with somebody like you to make
1: them better? I think reaching out on Facebook, just messaging me on Facebook right now is the easiest way to get through to me. Um, I'm I'm only just settling into this. I'm trying to work out how my days are going to run i've got two or three things to finish for my jfb authors and then once that's done in the new year i'm i'm getting on with rebuilding my uh my freelancing life
0: magnificent well we will put a link to your facebook page and maybe an email as well as all the other topics we mentioned during this podcast on our website which is com. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been terribly fun. It's gone so fast. I know, right? <laughs> well, we may we may have to have you back to talk about more specific questions as they come up for the, in terms of editing. So out there, if you have questions that you would want to, to ask Joe, go ahead and send them to us or put it on our website, and uh, maybe even we could convince Joe to have a a blog corner that she talks about. These are the top five things I think you should avoid, or boy, do I wish there was more of this out there in the publishing world.
1: Oh, that'd be so much fun, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah. Ah, we'll see what we can do.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm always up for drinking coffee with writers.
0: <laughs> it's been a delight. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Deirdre Schwein and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milk and Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, Arm Street in Ukraine, an honorable mention to all of the beautiful coffee streets on Murphy Street. And hey, thanks for listening.